You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Fury of Everything. Come on, get up. Morning, Brian. Stephen, are you aware that you voluntarily embarked upon a PhD in physics? Hello. Hello. Science. Arts. I'm a cosmologist. What's that? I study the marriage of space and time. The perfect couple. One never knows from where the next great leap forward is going to come, or from whom. What if I reverse time to see what happened at the beginning of time itself? Wind back the clock. Wind back the clock. Keep going. I don't know how. Yet. Keep winding. Where's you? It's called motor neuron disease. Life expectancy is two years. I want us to be together for as long as we've got. It'll affect everything. You don't realize what lies ahead. This is going to be a very heavy defeat. But I love him. And he loves me. We're going to fight this illness together. Good luck. Hi. I'm okay. So, this black hole at the beginning of time. Brilliant. Brilliant, Stephen. Well done, Doctor. He has pneumonia. The only way he will survive will be to give him a tracheotomy. He will never speak again. Yes, he will. My name is Stephen Hawking. It's American. Is that a problem? It has been a great joy to watch this man defy every expectation, both scientific and personal. There should be no boundaries to human endeavor. However bad life may seem, while there is life, there is hope. Thank you. Sorry, did you say something? All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for The Fury of Everything, and the story is as follows. In the 1960s, Cambridge University student and future physicist Stephen Hawking falls in love with fellow collegian Jane Wilde. At 21, Hawking learns that he has motor neuron disease. Despite this, and with Jane at his side, he begins an ambitious study of time, of which he has very little left, according to his doctor. He and Jane defy terrible odds and break new ground in the fields of medicine and science, achieving more than Ivor could hope to imagine. The film is starring Eddie Redmayne, Felicity Jones, Charlie Cox, Emily Watson, Simon McBurney, David Dulles, and Maxine Peake. It is directed by James Marsh, written by Anthony McCartan. Joining me for this podcast review, I have Nicole Ackman. Hi, everyone. Dan Baer. Hello, hello. Josh Parham. <laughs> Stole my line, Dan. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you going to say it, Josh, or... Sure. Hello, hello. I was going to say, it's tradition. <laughs> Danilo Castro. Hello, everyone. And also joining us as a guest here today, back on the podcast, we have Connor Olin. Hello, my name is Connor. Wow. Okay. Oh <laughs> Somebody came prepared to talk about the fury of everything today. Mm. All righty. So... 
This is our 2014 retrospective here. Uh, we are looking at one of the Best Picture nominees and also the winner for the Oscar for Best Actor that year for Eddie Redmayne. Uh, this movie, based on the life of not just Stephen Hawking, but also an examination of the life of Jane Hawking as well, uh, deals very much with the uh, marriage between the two and also uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, findings in the world of science. And um, I mean, just it's obviously a fascinating life, a fascinating story uh, being told that he only has two years to live when he uh, gets ALS or otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And God, the guy completely defied the odds on that one in terms of how long that he was able to live past that two-year life expectancy. Um, he did pass away eventually two years ago, uh, but this is a film that uh, has been now uh, revisited uh, time and time again, and you know clearly audiences loved it uh, when it came out in 2014, made about $123 million at the box office. Let's talk about it. Why don't we actually first start off with our guest here, Connor? What do you think of the Fury of Everything? Okay, so the this movie um is one that I enjoyed kind of so it sort of fell into this very generic biopic lens for me uh, at the time. Uh but I did enjoy it and now coming back to it all these years later, I uh, found myself very impressed uh, by it on a technical level, uh, impressed by the performances, the editing, uh, the score, all these elements that we're going to get into. I just wish the screenplay could have been a little stronger, but I do think that this is an above average biopic and I do not regret watching it. Okay. All right. Nicole? So this was a first time watch for me. I feel like a broken record. I say that at the beginning of every one of these 2014 retrospectives. I, I love it. I'm here for it. Please. <laughs> My God. And I do think with this one, I actually think it's a very different experience to see it for the first time in 2020, because obviously when the film came out in 2014, Stephen Hawking was still alive. And now watching it, um, you know, and looking back on his life. Uh, as he's no longer with us, I think it's a slightly different experience, maybe. Um, but I watched it with my parents, and it's a really interesting movie. I think there's a really fascinating story at the heart of it. I think the performances are pretty undeniable. I was very impressed with, obviously, Redmayne, but also Felicity Jones. Um, I will say I've got some issues with the cinematography in this film, and I also think there's some things in the screenplay that could have been handled better um but overall i thought like it's it's a really decent a really good movie but there's just a few things that keep it from me feeling like i can fully go all in for it okay all right dan bear okay so um i have a really heavy history with this movie um in that i <laughs> okay harder for me to say this than i was thinking um but so in 2014 when this came out i i think it came out october november of that year yeah it premiered at the uh toronto international film festival and then uh yeah it came out pretty much right after that you know usually around that time in award season yeah yeah and um so i had just moved a couple months ago to new york on my own and leaving a relationship of eight years, uh, the last two of which my partner ha had um, end-stage renal failure. And he was young 
at the time to have such an issue. And it was maybe the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. And I was, I was not expecting this movie to be what this movie was. Um, And when I saw it, then I was kind of floored because while my experience is not exactly um, the experience of the characters in this movie, it also was exactly my experience on an emotional level. And the, the performances, I think particularly of Felicity Jones, just resonated with me so, so strongly. And the writing for some of the scenes just uh, really, really impactful. And um, I was very worried (laughs) uh, coming to the movie now six years later, um, so far removed from that time in my life, um, that it would not have the same impacts for me because different time, I'm more removed. I can look at more of the technical elements of the movie. And uh, boy, was I wrong. Um, I started crying much earlier than I expected I was going to. And more or less had tears going throughout pretty much the entire rest of the movie after that happened. Um, and I, it, it's definitely, I can see more of the flaws with this movie now than I did at the time. Although that could also be just seeing it on a smaller screen versus seeing it in the cinema. Uh, but this, it still has, I think, this sort of really subtly intense emotional power. And as much as I'm not sure that the direction of the film itself is great, the direction of the actors, even from people who we know are capable of much more, like Emily Watson, poor, poor Emily Watson, um, we, they are so incredibly strong across the board. And they tap into these almost primal emotional states that it is just, it's so thrilling and touching to watch. And from a movie like this, from a romantic drama, biopic, uh, medical disability, tragedy, almost movie, that's all I really want. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hello. 
and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, sharing that story with us there, Dan. Um, I am so sorry, Danilo, you have to follow that. What did you think of the theory of everything? <laughs> um, so, well, that's a lot to follow, uh, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> as a movie, I'm going to echo a lot of what Nicole and Connor said, which is uh, the first time I saw it, I was a little underwhelmed by some of the more cliched elements of the script um i thought the performances were good but i thought they were in service of a movie that was maybe a little beneath them um but in rewatching it i think i've come to appreciate it a little bit more uh maybe because i know more what to expect but i think it is for me at least it's a solid if not remarkable movie um that's kind of what i pulled away from it and this was the only the second time I had seen it. I saw it once in theaters. Okay. Josh Parm. So I want to first say that when it comes to these kinds of movies, the kind of like traditional biopics out there, I will fully admit that they're not usually my thing. And it doesn't mean that I like hate them outright, but by like, like me just looking at the general field out there, unless it's doing something radically different with the storytelling, I tend to not be too invested in them. And when I first saw The Theory of Everything back in 2014, that kind of was my general thought, which was it's OK. There's some good elements here, but, you know, it's not bad. But overall, it just isn't for me. And coming back to it after having not really seen it since then, um. I think I liked it even less. I'm sorry. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And I do recognize all the things that everybody has said. I recognize that some of the performances are very fine. I recognize some of the craft on display. But I also think that this isn't a particularly well-directed movie. I... I actually thought the directing was really bad, actually. And there are some of those flaws in the writing. And even sometimes the performances, I found them to be a bit inconsistent. There are some times where it's really effective and it really got me emotionally. And then there's other times when it kind of felt like I could see the the gears turning in their eyes, to be honest. And overall, I just found myself not being that engaged with it. And unfortunately... I ended up just feeling like it's okay still, but I found myself looking at more issues than I did the last time. So sorry, Dan, <laughs> I did not have no, I, I, that you did. <laughs> I really think that if, if anything, my response is kind of just as typical. I think that it shows that like the, what everything that is on the surface, that's pretty much 
all you're going to get from this movie. Yeah. There is nothing that particularly rewards multiple viewings. It, it is exactly what it says on the tin and with worst, with worse cinematographic choices than one movie could probably stand. Did you guys see a movie in 2001 called a beautiful mind? Yeah. Yeah. The worst, one of the worst movies to ever win best picture. Yes. Go on. (laughs) Uh, I would disagree, but yeah. So I I guess. Doesn't it annoy anyone that they're watching that movie again in 2014? Oh, this is such a better version of that movie. It's a, yeah, it's it's sort of biopic (laughs) Mad Libs. It's the exact same like bones you know it's like the exact same skeleton that they are working with and i get it it's a formula and i get that people like it and damn it if that film could win best picture then if they make this movie the right way it's gonna at least get a best picture nomination and lo and behold here we are (laughs) this movie five academy award nominations so I think my problems with this movie go back to the screenplay. I actually am going to go to bat for uh, Benoit Delholm here, the cinematographer in this. And I am going to sing the praises of the cinematography, but I'm going to do something very difficult, which is I'm going to separate his work from James Marsh's direction, which... I know most of the time if a movie has good cinematography that you usually like to also lay that at the feet of the director and sometimes vice versa. But I really do think that that applies here because I do think that visually the theory of everything has so much to offer and so many striking images and a very, very different type of color palette and just overall look than what I have seen even in this year with Selma, The Imitation Game. I mean, like, Theory of Everything like seems to be bursting with color and light and life and just really had a lot kinetically going on. But with that said, I do think that the film is a bit conventional. I don't want to say it's messy because it's not. It's just very conventional And as a result, I wasn't as into it as I wanted to be. But at the same time, no. God damn it. Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones are very good in this movie. And they are the glue that holds it all together in the end. I think I liked it more this time than I did the first time. I have to admit, I think I did. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm a little shocked to see. Is that because you're starved? Is that that because you're starved for movies right now, Matt? I I mean... (laughs) Uh, maybe <laughs> yes there is a lot of Whereas wonderful the first time color here, but also yeah. like really random use of color there's a, like there's yes. a lot there's of a use lot of color color the color grading color. in this movie is is uh overdone in the extreme and also there is like so many of these like i want to say hallmark card-esque uh soft focus shots where yes. the light is just ridiculously mm-hmm. filtered. I'm like, oh, you just really want to understand that this is a beautiful, sad story, don't you? And like, I mean, yes, yes, it's kind of working, but also like, goddamn, like that is the most obvious, easy choice. But that's the thing, though. That's what I'm saying. The direction is conventional. 
does the cinematographer pull that off? Absolutely. I, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I would necessarily. Agree. I can't fault the cinematography when that's what the direction of the film is going for. But, but when the direction is unsubtle, the cinematography is going to indirectly be unsubtle as well. And I think it's just it feels like it's just colors thrown at the screen sometimes, especially like what Dan was saying, where it's like the sepia tone filter that they put on certain sequences. It feels like the very, marriage or the feel this. <laughs> There's a scene that's just colored red. No idea why. There's For one no that's reason. blue. There's one that's green. I started counting at a certain point, <laughs> and I was like, I'm sitting there racking my brain. Like, does this is this supposed to connect to an emotion? Like, is this supposed to tell me something? And by the end of the film, I was like, okay, no, I don't think I was meant to get anything from that. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> It feels like, you know, whenever you're doing something for a class where you're learning how to use effects and you do a bunch of effects that don't make any sense for what you're actually editing, but like <laughs> to prove that you can, that's kind of what the coloring in this feels like. It, I agree with you 100%. Well, we need, to remember, we need to remember that this director, James Marsh, is most famous for doing documentaries and he doesn't usually do a lot of narrative features. So maybe he wanted to experiment a little bit. Uh, there's no denying that this man has incredible talent as a documentary filmmaker. Um, but I, part of me does wonder, uh, he's this guy who's, they get a guy who's mostly done documentaries and to tell this incredible true story of Stephen Hawking, a part of me wonders if this would have been a better film if it had just been a documentary because Stephen and Jane were alive at the time of this film being made. And the true life, the real life story is in some respects, a little bit more interesting in some of the things they changed. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I think they wanted to make my left foot too. Mm-hmm. I think that's, yeah. you know, they wanted to make a beautiful mind too. They wanted to win Oscars. Yeah. I think that's it. <laughs> I do think like, did this movie not exist? Um, it would be a shame because Redmayne is really good in it, but I think it would be a better documentary and a documentary that now can't be made that could have been made then. Um, because as you said, you know, Stephen Hawking was alive then. And sorry, James Marsh. I wish you'd made a documentary. I have to say that I really do not like the directing of this movie. I I think that it, to me, that does feel very scattered shot and it feels messy and uncontrolled. And there are moments that happen where it just seems like we're focusing on the wrong elements and scenes will like linger on something for too long. And we're not getting the proper information to like really connect with this story and these characters. And I do blame all of that on the directing. I think that there are bits of the script that could use some work, but I think at least the script is providing a foundation that I don't really feel that sense of the directing really indulging in. I can see that. I think an issue I have on top of that, you mentioned scenes kind of meandering on vertilling. I feel like, the film never really feels organic in its flow for me. It feels like, okay, we got to this point. Let's get to this point, which is a biopic sort of issue in general, which is you have to hit major beats. I never felt like the movie got to really breathe and sort of find its own pace. I felt like it had to hit everything before the two hours. It, were well, th- what you guys are describing is you guys are describing like the movie having this singular auteur sensibility where it's going to break the mold of the traditional biopic formula and be something radically different when in reality it's just doing the exact same formula that this genre has done time and time and time and time again and unfortunately it works and 
I, I don't know what you guys wanted or what you expected, I guess, is what it and, comes down to. And really. For all that I'm saying this, it does the biopic thing way better than the imitation game. Just saying. Mm, I, I would disagree with that. I disagree. I, with that. Well, I mean, in terms of historical accuracy, I think that the movie has its own issues there as well. Um, in terms of what they changed for the screen. So I don't think this movie is immune to that necessarily. Um, I will admit that it's not as insulting as the imitation game. Yeah, I I mean, anyone who listened to the episode that we did on it knows that I have some problems with the imitation game. But I actually think that film does a little bit better of a job of getting you engaged and keeping you there um, and letting the story unfold. Well, because it's a thriller, it's more exciting. Yeah. Yes, but I think that there's a way that they could have let this movie unfold without it feeling so much like it's jumping from event to event, which I think is what every biopic, you know, should be trying to avoid is feeling like they're just checking off a list of, uh, you know, milestones. And there are biopics that do a very good job of feeling like you know they tell a real story that there's you know that they're narratively driven that they let things unfold in a way that you know everything can breathe and i think that this film is not good at that hey everyone sorry to interrupt but this is a preview of our full review of the 2014 film the theory of everything here on the next best picture podcast in order to get the full review you will have to head on over to patreon for next best picture for $1 minimum a month, you will get the rest of this hour and a half long review, along with other exclusive podcast content specifically for our Patreon subscribers. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. Write us a comment. Rate us five stars. It really, really helps for us to get noticed and get seen and for your favorite show to spread out to other people as well. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.